Hello and welcome to Tales from the Enchanted Forest with your animal companions, Fox and Sparrow. Hiya! If you're here for a story about Egyptian prince, fate, man's best friend, and a mighty giant, then we've got you covered. This story comes from an Egyptian papyrus, which contains a series of love poems and two tales. The original papyrus is currently held by the British Museum and known by the name of the donor as the Harris 500 since it originally came from Semela Harris and her father, Anthony Charles Harris's collection. Translators have remarked on the simplicity of the story, and they date the text to be from the 18th or 19th dynasty in the New Kingdom. The section of the papyrus itself is folded into five pages and has a very quick pace, as you'll see from our summary. It's also stylistically closest to a tale called The Two Brothers, which also deals with prophecy and fate. We've had to use a series of translations, retellings, and articles to piece together a comprehensive summary of the text, but the true mystery of this story is that the end of the tale was burnt during an explosion, and the ending has been cut off, so we don't really know how this is going to end. Wait, you brought us a half-baked story this week? I did. But, but how will I move on if I don't know how it ends? We'll just have to move along with our lives, never knowing what happens to the doomed prince, although I think it's in the title. I guess, if it's straight up telling us he's doomed, I suppose. But I guess this is also what fanfiction is for. <laughs> Fox, the story you brought us today is beautiful, but I see it has been met with a terrible fate. So let us gather close together as you regale the tale of the doomed prince. There once was a king who was happy in all things, except he longed for a son. So he prayed and prayed until his wish was granted. However, when the seven Hathors came to attend the birth of the prince, they foretold a terrible fate for the boy. He will die either by crocodile, serpent, or dog. Now, Hathor was the goddess mother, the goddess of fertility, childbirth, love, and beauty. She was the mistress of heaven and seen in the Milky Way. Sometimes, she took on the form of the seven Hathors, who were tellers of fate. They knew the length of the life of every child as well as their fate and in some cases, her priests acted in the name of Hathor in order to tell fortunes and oracles. So the king has a new son, he brings in these essentially fairy godmothers, and they give him a terrible fate. So they tell him his terrible fate is going to be a crocodile, or a serpent, or a dog. To me, it just kind of sounds like they're giving their best guess at how he may die, and they're just hedging their bets here. It might kind of be like tea reading. Oh, I suppose. It just To me, it just sounds like... This is guesswork, and it sounds kind of hodgepodge. <laughs> well, usually, like, when you see a fate, it's never as clear-cut as it is in some fairy tales, where it's like, ah, you will die on the Thursday at 11.32, exactly at this time. Sometimes with things like tea leaves, it might look like this, or it might look like that, and you kind of have to guess, like, ah, you know, this, the stars could be saying you'll die by a crocodile, but it's long, so it could also be a serpent, but the mouth kind of looks like a dog, so... Either a new monster is going to appear specifically to kill you, or it could be one of these three. So the fates are like essentially using tea leaves to determine the fate of this child. Okay, cool. I like this. No, I like no, this. They're Kevin. not using tea leaves. I was making the, the <laughs> comparison to tea leaves. Okay, okay. I, Interesting. I don't actually right. know how the Hathors tell someone's fate. It might be like the Oracle, um, like Apollo's Oracles, where they just sit in an incense-filled room and have visions. Mostly because they're, like, suffocating with all the incense. They're like, <laughs> okay, something happens, let me out, let me out. <laughs> anyway, so hearing this, 
The king had a house built on a mountain and filled it with everything that could ever be needed. He sent his son there so that the boy would be safe from his fate. However, as children do, the boy climbed onto the roof one day and saw a man with a dog. Never having seen a dog before, the boy wanted one for himself. And his father, wanting to give him everything he could, gave him a puppy as his faithful companion. I do not blame this kid. I mean, having a pet has been like the best thing ever for me, so I can see why he wants a animal companion. It's a bit strange that the father didn't even try to bargain, like, listen, I can't give you a dog, but I can give you a cat. What about a cat? Do you want one of those? I mean, cats are way better, so that would have been an awesome bargain. Well, I just it seems weird that he would give him a dog, specifically since dogs were one of the animals that were most suspicious because they were associated with death in the afterlife. And lots of canine deities were associated with Osiris, the god of the afterworld. That being said, we can't forget about the jackal dog appearing god, Anubis, who was the most important death god before Osiris. It's kind of ominous that he's getting a dog, which is a symbol of death, and the Hathors probably saw this coming, and his fate is sealed when he gets this dog, which was quite weird for Egyptians at the time. The king does give the prince a boar hunting dog in line with Egyptian traditions, which saw dogs as working animals. So they were very firmly cat people. And it surprises me the king does not offer a cat because that was the popular choice of the time. Yeah, and it's like he didn't even put up any bit of a fight. There's no text line saying, no, like, can we rethink this? He's just like, okay, fine. I'll probably kill my son. But you know what? As long as he's happy. (laughs) It's anything for my boy. Even if it causes his death. Even though I've worked so hard to protect him from his fate, this this thing, yeah, this is this is no big whatever. But also, like, a cat would be the perfect substitute because this boy is essentially trapped in this house. So an indoor cat is yes. perfect. Why would you give him a dog? Absolutely. Specifically a boar hunting dog that needs exercise and lots of energy and needs to go outside. I think this king is setting himself up for failure here. Honestly though. Let it be known that if this guy had a cat, he probably also would have never wanted to leave the place. So cats would have saved this story. Just saying. (laughs) (laughs) As time went on, the boy grew into a man and he grew quite restless. He confronted his father and when told of his fate, he simply scoffed and said that what shall come to pass will, even if he is locked away. Wise words. (laughs) In some retellings, the king allowed his son to leave and to go to his heart's content. But in other retellings, strangely enough, they add in an evil stepmother that banishes him. In these later tales, the evil stepmother wants to be rid of him and urges her husband to banish him, not only from the castle, but from all of Egypt. I think these later retellings play into the trope of the evil stepmother, which was not actually mentioned by the basic translations, so it could be that this was added in due to a lie he mentions later on. It's uncertain. That, but that's just so random. This this king loves his son so much, and he's built this like a separate palace just to keep him safe. And he's foolishly given him a dog, which will probably kill him, but that's not the point. Uh, he's doted on his son. He loves his son. Why on earth would just another person come into the picture and then just suddenly like, yeah, I love you and I want to protect you, but I'm also kicking you out of my country. <laughs> 
it, it just it just comes out of left field is all. It does. And that's why I'm hesitant to believe these later translations because it seems strange that a king whose entire, you know, life's desire was to have a son would then so easily kick his son out. It could also be that his new wife has children of her own and so he has another son who doesn't have this kind of doomed prophecy so he actually has another heir to the throne who actually will not die so it could be that um i still don't know if i believe that bit do we know anything about the doomed prince's actual mother is she ever mentioned she was in the beginning in the sense that she gave birth to him (laughs) that was her role (laughs) (laughs) that was her role the beginning and end we have no yeah because honestly when i first heard it i didn't even hear them mention it so i wasn't even sure if like this was supposed to be like a son who was birthed or a son that was just like handed to him in some other way like a magic bamboo child like maybe like i i just i missed that part and i was just confused for most of the story because she never is mentioned no i think it's one of those things where like you pray and pray and pray and then god why like they make it so that your wife can become fertile specifically like i said hathor was the goddess of fertility so if they pray to her she probably allowed them to have a child or rewarded him for his <laughs> prayer i'll allow it i don't know how to word this that's sounding really weird <laughs> it's just weird that she's just never mentioned really they don't even give her that one line saying and then she died moving on it's <laughs> just like yep nope well, we don't know if she's dead. We don't know if, you know, she didn't have any more kids. Exactly. We don't know. We have no idea what happened to her, except in the tales that say she died after giving birth. And in those ones, he goes on to have an evil stepmother. So who knows? Yeah. The prince, however, just lived his life doing whatever he wanted until he came across the king of Mesopotamia. Now, this king or chief, depending on which version you read, had a daughter and loved her to pieces. Enough that he did not want anyone else to be near her and that he thought everyone else was unworthy of her. He built her a house with 70 windows that was 70 cubits off the ground and commanded that all the nearby princes have to come and try to reach his daughter's window. Whoever climbed up would win her hand in marriage. How many princes are just hanging about these days, just available to go scale this wall? Well, it depends. In the text that I read, the primary one I used for research, it said he summoned the princes of Syria. And in some other ones, he summons every prince nearby. So it could be that he sent out a signal and it doesn't really matter which princes come. So back then, you had lots of wives, you had lots of concubines, or you had lots of children. So whatever it was, there ended up being lots of children in the family. Mm. So he just kind of flared up Prince Signal in the sky, just like the bat signal. It was like, come hither, try and fail as you get to my daughter. Probably die trying, because it's 70 cubits off the ground. I don't even know how much 70 cubits is. I'm just assuming very high, because at one point they talk about needing to fly. So I'm like, um, this is very, very up there. Looking it up, 70 cubits. This is what we're doing. Let me explain this to you in terms that you'll understand. Thank you, because I'm a child. (laughs) So 70 cubits is 32 meters, which is approximately 179.75 bananas long. Holy crap. That's a lot of bananas. Can you imagine falling that many bananas? Well, I think in this podcast, we are now dedicated to converting everything into bananas, just because it's a good frame of reference. (laughs) Thank you. That does not sound like a fun fall. So yeah, 
I imagine there was some death or at least serious injury that was happening. Probably. When our doomed prince arrived in Mesopotamia, he was taken in with the other princes and treated quite well. In various tellings, the prince lies and tells the other suitors that he was just the son of a simple officer from Egypt that had fled from his resentful stepmother. This was obviously a lie on his part, or depending on which version you read, it might not be a lie, but the kind princelings nonetheless felt sorry for him and extended their hospitality. One day while exploring, the prince saw the youths climbing up a glass house. When he asked what they were doing, they told him of the beautiful maiden in the tower, <clears throat> Rapunzel. Anyone who could reach her would become her husband and the son-in-law of the chief. Now the prince didn't really know what the princess looked like, but he loved a good challenge. So he climbed up and up and up all the way to the window. At this point, the translations get a little bit muddled and they vary. So at some point, the prince mentions an enchantment or invokes the aid of a god. But either through flying or climbing or, you know, eating the bananas, he reaches her. And the girl was excited to see her future husband and embraced him at once. Let's talk about this poor girl for a second. She has been locked up in this tower by her father for I wonder how how long. Because it's, it's weird that he would have this glass castle built specifically to keep her off the ground, but then summon a bunch of men to come climb the castle to get to her. Wouldn't it be easier just to not tell people about her? Also... I'm more concerned of the fact she's living in a glass house, to be quite honest. That would get very hot, I would imagine, uh, living in that. Also, how are people gripping the outside of the wall if it's just like a glass sheet? How? Spider-Man! Yeah! <laughs> Send up the bat signal and hopefully we'll get a Spider-Man-esque <laughs> prince to come save the princess from her father. I also have to believe, like, someone else was going up and down to, like, give her at least food. In my headcanon, the prince just kind of realized there was an elevator or a set of stairs somewhere and just used those <laughs> to get to the princess. Because that just makes more sense to me than climbing just a straight glass uh, wall. Well, what's interesting to me is that the idea of kings or princes or chiefs locking their daughters in glass towers isn't unique to this story. There's an entire subgenre of fairy tales where princesses are locked in towers, but specifically glass towers. Gail Carson Levine specifically has a very fun story called Cinderella's and the Glass Hill, where he has to get to a princess that's locked inside of a glass tower as well. So it's interesting to see that, you know, men all around the world are locking their daughters away in these specifically built glass traps or prisons. I think their daughters are actually plants, because I feel like plants would appreciate this greenhouse. <laughs> Maybe, but then even plants, you know, plants are very temperamental. They might die because it's too hot. They want indirect sunlight, not direct sunlight. Who knows? All I'm saying is if she does not have a nice garden going on the inside, she's, she's missing out. She does, what else is she going to do up there, to be quite honest? Throw rocks at the men below. <laughs> oh, those who live in glass houses should not throw rocks. I'm joking when I say that she was, you know, throwing rocks at the suitors because when she sees our prince, she is so happy. She embraces him. She sends a letter to her father and she is full on ready to get married to this dude. Wow. However, the chief, when he gets the letter, tries to inquire, oh, which of the princes or which of the sons of the princes went up and got my daughter? 
So when he finds out that it's a fugitive from Egypt, he grows super annoyed, and he decrees that the man would be sent back to where he came from. The girl in the tower is a bit annoyed and does not appreciate this turn of events. So not only was she locked in a high tower waiting for a strange man to come up, but when one finally did it and made it all the way to the top, her father was going to send him away. Not a chance. She grabs onto the prince and exclaimed by Horace that if anyone tried to take him from her, she would refuse to eat or drink, and in that hour, she would die. Whoa, 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 hold up a minute, hold up a minute. She will die within the hour because she's not eating or drinking? Uh, how often does she need to eat or drink? I'm confused. Well, she's living in a glass tower, nothing else to do. Maybe she eats quite frequently. Wow, okay, dude, you might want to reconsider. She's starting to sound high maintenance if she needs to eat and drink every hour or she'll die. (laughs) Just saying, just saying, might want to think about this a little bit. (laughs) I honestly thought it was weird as well, but I think she just means that, like, it might just be one of those dramatic things, like, oh, I'm just going to die if you don't let me marry him. The whole daddy, I love him. daddy, I love him. (laughs) There are too many daddy I love him <laughs> moments Well, for like strange people who've just met. Oh my gosh. Thank you, Disney's Little Mermaid, for giving us that beautiful line that we can just throw into any fairy tale and it just be completely accurate. <laughs> Times must have been different. Like getting to know someone probably takes so long. And according to, you know, Asian parents, you should just marry him and fi- find out what he's like after. So that's what they're going for, I think. <sighs> well... Sucks to be her then. Well, I guess she's going to, she might win this one out. Um, it depends on how much she doesn't want her to die. <laughs> well, the chief loved his daughter, but you know, not enough to respect her decision. So he planned to send an assassin. The girl, knowing her father was a temperamental man and would never back down this easily, made a second decree. She swore by the great Lord Ra that if her doomed prince dies, then she will die that same day. Basically, This is on par for the Asian parents' dramatics, and we go hard for little details like this. Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I love it. I also imagine that she's just not going to eat or drink for an hour, and that's just going (laughs) to be how she dies. Maybe the reason he has to keep her her in the castle is to stop people from asking to marry her and being like, listen, she's really weird, but I don't want people to know she's weird, so I'll just make her unattainable instead. That seems like a good decision. Nothing can go wrong with that, ever. (laughs) So the chief, having been Uno reversed twice, decides to see who this youth was and summons the both of them to meet him. At first, our prince was nervous, but as soon as he entered the room, the chief embraced him. He asked who he was, and the prince told him the same story as before, that he was just the son of an Egyptian officer who had fled due to his bitter stepmother. Uh, why did he lie about this again? This seems really random. He wasn't, uh, fated to die by like a rival clan or anything like that. It was just animals that are coming after him. He should not at all be worried about humans. Humans will not kill him. Well, considering that he's carrying around a dog that is fated to kill him, he seems to kind of be yoloing this whole thing. Ugh, I can't believe I said yoloing. <laughs> I feel like this guy would have a YouTube channel and just, like, do one of those daily vlog things. He's like, yeah, I'm going to die by my dog probably one day, oh, but let's live life as much as we can. Yo, subscribe, hit that <laughs> bell icon. Yeah. 
my theory for why he lied is that probably he didn't want people to know who he was, that he was a prince. Maybe he didn't want to be treated any differently. Or the news of him being a doomed prince had spread. And so people maybe knew that there is a prince of Egypt who had been doomed to these three fates and he didn't want that to get around. Mm. So he's in a tough situation because he's not a prince, but if you told the truth, he was a prince, it would also just be as bad. Yeah, he's he's having a rough life, this prince. But then why add in the part of a bitter stepmother? Like that just seems unnecessary. It could be a very easy way to explain it without having to get into details, because if you say, oh, I was just exiled from my land, people might jump to conclusions of, ah, okay, well, what did you do? Whereas if you blame it on someone else, and if that someone else happens to be a witch or a woman or an evil stepmother, people will, will feel more sympathetic to you, I think. If it wasn't your own doing and you give a good enough reason, people tend to just take it at face value because one, it's an awkward conversation to, you know, probe into. So they might just say, ah, family issues, got it. <laughs> family drama. It's unlike me, who I'd be like, family drama? Ooh, please tell me more. I have popcorn. <laughs> well, the chief was not like you. He did not want to know anymore. He just decided to accept the youth and gave them his blessing along with the house, slaves, land, cattle, and all manner of gifts to ensure his daughter's happiness with this poor officer. One day, the prince finally told his wife of his fate, and as if her past wasn't enough of an issue, now he brought his own baggage to the marriage. She immediately suggested that they kill his dog, as in one of the things that's supposed to kill him, but the prince was horrified and said that he would not do that. I think this part here leads us to think that, okay, the dog is the one that's actually going to kill him in the end because it's brought up again. So we've seen the dog be mentioned twice in the fact that he could hurt the prince and the prince refusing to believe it. I know that's probably what would happen. Again, we don't know the end of the story, so we know for sure. Mm -hmm. And as much as that's very likely, I would love nothing more for the real text to have been like the dog was uh, either not around or maybe he killed the dog or something and it was actually just another dog that was supposed to kill him like this dog was just there had nothing to do with the prophecy at all well the prophecy is a bit weird because it says a dog a serpent a crocodile and even if you kill one dog that doesn't stop their like the existence of every other dog in the world so just because this dog doesn't kill him doesn't mean another dog won't or just because you know it's just, it's a weird because this prophecy isn't very specific. It just says he will be killed by either one of these. It could have said, you will be killed by an animal with teeth. Yeah. Like, <laughs> for all I care at this point, you've named three different animals that can show up in three wildly different places. I mean, if you really wanted to get out of this, you should have just, like, gotten out of Egypt and at least eliminate, like, the crocodile as a potential killer. I mean, I think he'd have to leave Africa for I don't that. Know. And then there's still the snake and there's still the dog. You can't win. They, the the Hathors had everything covered. They're like, well, if he goes to this region, we still got snakes. If he goes to this region, well, they still got dogs. Yeah, that's true. Dogs are really everywhere. I don't know where he would have gone to outrun those. Like, Eventually, if he'd gone north enough, I think snakes wouldn't have been an issue. But, but then you have wolves, which were kind of like dogs. So yeah, it's a whole other can of worms. I, I don't know. He, he, I guess this guy is just a doomed prince. Sorry, buddy. <laughs> well, see, I would choose to stay in one place and be as careful as possible with my surroundings. But our prince keeps getting restless, and so he decides to go traveling once again. However, this time, his wife, who had spent her life stuck in a glass tower, wanted to go with him. 
In the first town they came across, they were confronted by a crocodile. Fortunately, there was a mighty giant who could capture the crocodile and keep it away from the prince. He didn't kill it due to its sacred nature, as crocodiles had a lot of power in ancient Egypt and in the Old Kingdom. There was a god, Sobek, a name literally just meaning crocodile. In the pyramid text, Sobek is a raging god who stole women, but he was also responsible for creating fertile lands near the riverbanks. Another crocodile-headed god was Amit, a demoness who devoured those whose hearts were found impure during the heart ceremony. So you don't really want to kill the crocodile, but you also got to keep it away from this prince who just seems to be drawn to the things that are supposed to kill him. It's a lose-lose situation, I think. No one seems to be willing to kill the things that are supposed to kill the prince, so it makes me feel like they're just fine with the prince dying. <laughs> While this is an important crocodile, another well-known one that you're probably familiar with, Fox, is the one from Peter Pan. Uh, this crocodile also seems to represent death and the certainty that comes with it. This variant from Peter Pan, in particular, is always showing how death is kind of always coming for us. And this whole idea is punctuated by the fact that his approach is always sounded by the ticking of a clock. Because before the story of Peter Pan, the alligator did swallow a regular clock. So it's always just ticking its belly. For some reason, the mechanism doesn't <laughs> stop working. And he's always chasing Captain Hook, who's always trying to outrun death. And we need to cover Peter Pan one time is what I've learned by talking about this. Because I have so many thoughts on it and I'm like all over the place. Well, it's very similar. I didn't even think about that, but you're right. I mean, the the crocodile always lurking in the background is similar to how, you know, the crocodile, the dog, they're always following the prince and they are his doom, but he's trying to outrun them in a way without actually trying to outrun them the same way Peter Pan does. I mean, the crocodile's coming for Hook, not Peter Pan. Oh, yeah, but yes. sorry. <laughs> um, but yeah, all I could think of was when he came across this crocodile was that crocodile from Peter Pan. And just that impending doom he represented. This part is very confusing to me, this next little bit. With the crocodile and this mighty giant. And I've read multiple translations of this text and I'm still a bit confused. But I've tried to clear it up as much as I could. So the first part is a peculiar bit that says the mighty giant kept the crocodile trapped. But he traveled every day and returned home when the sun was high so that he never lost his shadow. I've taken a look to see what kind of superstitions there existed with shadows in ancient Egypt or shadows and giants. Um, and it seems that there are superstitions around this region that are based on the hyena and how it could paralyze a man just by stepping on his shadow. However, on the other hand, there are also regions that believe you need to avoid the shadowless hour of the high noon since certain demons did not cast a shadow and you could not tell a creature from a man. So it could be translation issues, it could be me not understanding the context, but across the various texts, there is mention of a mighty man or a mighty giant or just a giant and his shadow. And there's something to do with him either being scared of it or looking for it. And I am thoroughly confused as to what it is because I lack the cultural knowledge to know specifically why this is the case. If any of our travelers know anything more about ancient Egypt or the ancient Egyptian thoughts on shadows, I would love to hear more. That being said, our story talks about the, the crocodile and the man and then skips to a couple months later. <laughs> wow, time jump. <laughs> One night, the prince fell asleep on the couch and his wife stayed up by his side, placing a bowl of milk next to him and keeping watch. Eventually, a snake slid into the open and made to bite the man. But the wife had the servants feed it milk until it was full and helpless. 
After the snake was still, the wife killed it. When her husband woke up, she declared that the gods had given her one of his dooms and would surely give her the others. So they sacrificed to the gods and prayed, despite the fact that she killed one snake out of hundreds of thousands. Uh, So I'm not sure quite what she thinks she did here, but we shall see. She's like, I did it. I did a thing. He's like, oh, nice job, sweetie. Good job. I'm sure that will protect me. That's actually kind of cute. If that's how he's thinking, like she's like so excited she did something. He's like, oh, yeah. Okay. (laughs) So like the dog that we talked about earlier, the snake is another tricky creature that is associated with both kings and destruction. Egyptian pharaohs often wore the uraeus, a golden headpiece that had a gold cobra sitting on the temple. And this was a sign of the goddess, and I'm going to pronounce this name very wrong because I've looked it up a hundred times and I cannot make this sound. Uh, It was a sign of the goddess Wajet, or Wadiet, Wajet. Um, who is a green cobra goddess known as the protector of pharaohs and their divine power. So all of this is to associate cobras and snakes with kind of protecting the king, protecting princes. However, the original snake from Egyptian mythology is Nehebeku, an eternal god and demon that eats souls in the afterlife. In the coffin text, it's said that another god, Atum, calmed his chaotic nature and afterwards he became a benevolent god that not only helped others, but he brings food to pharaohs in the afterlife. So there's kind of mixed messaging here on if we're supposed to be afraid of the snakes, if we're supposed to uh, respect them in the sense that they're here to protect the prince. We will never know because we don't know if a serpent kills him in the end. Clearly the wife doesn't respect snakes because she just like stabbed this one and apparently was the snake. But I'm actually more surprised that the wife's plan worked that she was able to lure the snake out with milk because as much as like i think it's a myth i mean this whole story is a myth but (laughs) this particular aspect within the myth is its own myth that snakes like milk which they don't it's been well documented well proven at this point that they don't snakes will drink milk if they are desperate and dehydrated but they have no preference for it and in fact if they drink too much of it they'll kill themselves so If it drank a whole bowl of milk, I would actually suspect it would have just killed itself by drinking that much because it's not really, it doesn't really like milk. It doesn't really want to drink it. So maybe she stabbed it, but it was already dead and then was just like, I did it. It was easy. Well, I like her. I like her character as a protective wife who's trying to face her husband's fears and his fate dead on, whereas he keeps trying to just run away from it or well in his defense he's not running away from it he's just said that if if this is how he's going to die it's going it's how he's going to die he can't stop it but i like the fact that the wife is trying to confront it trying to do something about it and trying to just head first jump into it and protect her husband i think that's a very cute um very sweet sentiment it's also very brave the fact that she's taking this on when it's not her curse to take on or her doom to take on she's just doing it if you had your chance to change your fate would you? <laughs> Do you remember that? Wow, what is that from? Uh, it's from the Brave trailer for like Pixar's Brave. So it's Merda, 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 and she. It's like from the trailer that I th- feel like everyone saw so much. It was like if you had the chance to change a fight, would you? I love. Would you? <laughs> I'll be shooting for my own hand. And then she like rips her dress. I'm not going to lie. I absolutely love that character. I love the setup. I cannot watch that movie though. I get so bored by the time the mom turns into the bear. I just was like, oh, can we go back to her just 
being awesome? Why are we doing this bear transformation thing? Okay, <laughs> okay, we're doing this. I actually really liked it. I liked the bear transformation. It gave me very, like, it gave me Brother Bear vibes. Um, and Brother Bear is a movie that always make me cry. But then I also liked the comedic effect of the little brothers turning into little bears. I thought that was quite cute. The dad had a very good dynamic. Overall, I think it was a good family movie about the family unit, which is a lot harder, I think, to portray in a very interesting way because, you know, it's hard to show the family dynamics in a situation like that when people just can't relate to being, you know, married off in Scotland. But... <laughs> <laughs> well, being a princess, being married off in Scotland. Uh, but I really liked it. I thought it was a very good story about trying to understand each other through the generational shift about what's expected from one kind of society and one kind of generation to the next. Mm. It's been a long time since I watched it. I should give it another shot. Um, you should. <laughs> I remember enjoying the, the characters a lot, but I just remember getting really bored with the actual plot itself. Oh, I mean, that's that's like, you can't like every movie. I like liking things, though. <laughs> <laughs> well, I like like this man, but I'm not sure he's going to live. Because <laughs> later on, he was walking in his fields with his dog when the dogs are chasing after something. The prince follows him, and they ran into the river where the crocodile was hiding. Out of nowhere, the crocodile launched himself out of the water and grabbed the prince and began dragging him deeper into the water. As he carried him, the crocodile said, Behold, I am thy doom. Ooh. That's that's a really good line. I love that. I am going to use that. So again, like all of the variations, this is the part where it's also a bit translated differently, retold differently. So this is the part where sometimes the dog tells the prince, I am thy doom, and chases him into the water. In other stories, the crocodile is actually a demon being held captive by the giant, and so he says, I am thy doom, but... If you free me from my crocodileness and kill the giant, you know, I will, I won't hurt you. So this story gets really wild at the very end. And this is the exact moment where the papyrus is burnt and no longer legible. So we have no idea what happened. Uh, it's quite likely that the doomed prince survived his fate and was saved by his diligent wife. It could also be that the king seals the prince's fate the moment he gives them the dog. It doesn't really matter. Um, but given that the prediction of the Hathors comes strictly to pass in another tale, the one I mentioned earlier, the tale of the two brothers of Anpu and Bata, it seems likely that in some form or the other, the prince does end up dying from one of these creatures. So it's, it's kind of difficult to tell. I, I, I really like how the story is told us straight up how this guy's gonna die but we are sitting here going but does he is it how he dies <laughs> we need to know we don't know like they told us and we're just like not believing them yeah it's, it's hard to believe it though because usually people do that for thrill factor and they say listen this is what happens in the story and we go ah not really we get a happy ending because people like happy endings you tell stories and specifically, we've talked about this a bit before when we talked about oral storytelling for entertainment for adults, stories had a purpose to entertain. So they had a beginning, a middle, an end. They might have been, even in the simplest form, stories had some kind of ending. And usually that ending was either a happy ending or a sad ending, whatever it was, we had an ending. And so even though I knew going into this story when we were researching in the very beginning, I'm like, oh, okay, it's burnt. I was still 
at the very end, I was like, wait, where's the rest of it? And I kept trying to find uh, the ending or see if anyone could like, anyone had an ending. There are, you know, official retellings of the story, which is more or less literary fan fiction. But it, there's no actual ending to this story. So we can only guess what happens, I suppose. My original reading of the story was by Andrew Lang. And I was aware because you mentioned it to me that the story did not have an ending. But I was just reading it through, and that one, like you said, does have literary fan fiction, essentially. It fills it in. And so I was kind of confused. I was like, ha, this wrapped it up. And then I had to like unlearn what I learned from that version and by rereading the original versions, because that one changed a lot of little things in the beginning and the middle to make sense for its ending that it makes up. Mm-hmm. So it was like a lot of things I was going... Even like we were talking about the giant, I'm like, I don't even think the giant plays a role in that version. So I was like, what? Who? Oh yeah, right. He's in this. Well, yeah. Well, this is this is the problem with with Lang, and not just for Lang, obviously, but the issue with retellings and retellings that are packaged kind of as originals is that when we read them, that's the one that gets ingrained in our mind, and then we go back and we read the actual translations or we read the official. Um, works that are out there we realize that so many things have had to change in order for an author to make the story fit no nothing against retellings I love retellings I love YA retellings I love classic retellings but there is a place for them and there's a place for the original and I think they can coincide together like I the Andrew Lang version I've read as well and I think it satisfies that need for an ending Exactly. Which I need sometimes. I need to know, okay, but what happened? But sadly, this is where the story ends, and we will never know how it was originally meant to end. So I kind of want to call this a cliffhanger, but cliffhangers are more intentional. They're meant to occur a moment after a twist is revealed or when characters are in great peril. But this is just not an intentional stopping point by the author. It's just we have lost the ending. So in this case, we're kind of just left hanging, never really sure about what was meant to be, uh, except for the fact that we were told straight up that he would die by a dog, a crocodile, or a snake. So I think we can just take that and have to be okay with that. Or you can read Andrew Lang's version along with other versions that have filled in the ending if you so choose to. Yeah, I see I see nothing wrong with supplementing your reading, specifically for t- for tales like this where there are so many different Mm -hmm. translations out there. There are so many different kind of, as we've learned more about the hieroglyphics and as we learned more about the text and other stories, there are all these sort of research articles about it and how certain words change or how a certain character's changes. I think it's important to realize that we're always learning. So as we learn about maybe how a trope is used in this text, we can apply that to what we know because we don't we aren't there. We don't know, okay, this is exactly what the Egyptians thought about snakes. This is what they thought about crocodiles. This is what the Hathers were. Even in this podcast, we can do the research and we can say, okay, this is what it could be, but we don't know a hundred percent and it might come out that next year something comes out about prophecies and how our entire scope of knowledge changes. Um, as someone who studied anthropology in school, it was difficult because as you found a new piece of the fossil record, things had to shift, things had to change. And so if you start to think of literature as static, I don't think you can ever learn 
because you're always thinking in a timeline. You're always thinking, okay, this came first, this came second. Or, you know, the Tale of the Doomed Prince is just a retelling of this other story. You know, the idea of the glass tower came from a European story. That's, things can exist and they can exist in different timelines. Uh, or they can exist, maybe something will come out that the story was written for a specific person and then that changes everything. So we have to keep an open mind when we read things like this. Our story may have left the travelers hanging, but we shall not end this episode short. Not before we give you today's five fantastic finds. Number one. Besides being royalty, both the prince and the princess have one thing in common. Both had fathers who created amazing places for them, places they were never supposed to leave. The gilded cage trope is when characters live in a fantastic place that meets their every possible want and need, but they can never leave it. This trope often demonstrates that the characters values their liberty over comfort when they inevitably break free from their own luxurious prison. Some stories that make use of this trope at different points are Beauty and the Beast, Avatar the Last Airbender, Hunger Games, and the last week's story, East of the Sun and West of the Moon. Often stories that feature this trope only focus on it for a short time in the story. After all, seeing the character facing the consequences of leaving the gilded cage and learning to live outside of it is the most rewarding part of it. But if you want to see a movie that is all about acknowledging and escaping a gilded cage, look no further than The Truman Show. This movie focuses on Jim Carrey's character, Truman Burbank, who has a pretty great life overall. But unbeknownst to him, his whole life is being subtly directed for a real-life television show. It's an old movie. I won't say more, but if you haven't seen it, go watch it. It's fantastic, and it really explores this trope perfectly. One of the first movies that actually blew my mind. Most people know everything about what it is like, and how it's going to play out in the end, but I still was so riveted by it every step of the way. It's, it's a good one. Number two. I will be the first to admit that I enjoy going down rabbit holes when I'm researching. This episode was no exception, except I was caught in a historical revelation. The Harris 500 papyrus was donated by Selima Harris, who is listed on the British Museum's website as the donor of her adopted father's collection, the Egyptologist Anthony C. Harris. However, in a magazine article, again by the British Museum, Morris L. Beerbrier, assistant keeper of the Egyptian antiquities at the British Museum, an author wrote that Salima was often listed as his adopted daughter since her mother was an, quote, African lady about whom nothing was known. For Harris's part, he openly claims Salima as his daughter and remarks in a letter dated June 21st that he had hired an American photographer by the name of Mr. Green to teach his daughter, his exact words, photography for their next voyage in November. He had also sent her to Britain for her formal education, and Selima Harris was actually quite exceptional in her own right. Her photographs were used during the Syro-Egyptian historian meetings, she was a friend and regular corresponder with Florence Nightingale, and she was a lady member of the Society of Biblical Archaeology. For a complete deep dive post and links to all the original resources, be sure to check out our website at www.talesnewchantforest.com. Number three. This story was recorded on papyrus. What is papyrus, you ask? Besides being the font for James Cameron's avatar, it is also a plant and the name for the thick parchment material made from the plant of the same name. This material is best known for being made and used in Egypt. While it was used as paper for recording stories and official documents, the material was also fashioned into sandals, baskets, and even boats. 
To make papyrus paper, you would first have to harvest the plant. The ancient Egyptians would have used the cypress papyrus plant, which looks like a tall green reed between four to five meters high, with what looks like a bush of grass at the top of it. Chopping the plant from the base and removing the grassy top, the outer green layer is removed and often repurposed for basket weaving. Then the inner white part, also known as the pith, would be chopped into long strips. These strips would then be soaked in water for a few days before being taken out, laid side by side, slightly overlapping with each other, and then covered with another layer of papyrus strips. Next, pressure would be applied, often in the form of a large rock, to squeeze all the remaining liquid out of the paper. After a few days, the paper would then be laid out under the sun to dry. Then the papyrus would be smooth and dry and ready to be used. Number four. The idea of fate and prophecy are seen repeatedly in a lot of Egyptian works, as early as the sixth dynasty, and probably existed beforehand. In one work, it says, his time does not fail to come. One does not escape what is fated. So it seems very likely that the prince in our story will meet his fate. In fact, the precedent we have to go on comes from the tale of the two brothers, which also comes from the 19th dynasty. The god Knum makes the younger brother, Bata, a wife, and the Hathors are present to determine that she will die by knife, which she eventually does. It is rare that anyone could escape their fate or their destiny, and yet there is evidence of protection amulets and rituals. These were probably used to circumvent bad omens, curses, or a god's bad favor. Now, the scholarship around the Doom Prince varies, with some scholars arguing that there will be a happy ending, given the way the wife is portrayed as protecting him, while others argue that his death will surely occur, but in a surprising way. Number five. While today it seems normal, it's actually quite strange and rather interesting that the prince really wanted a dog as his companion. You see, up until the 18th or 19th century, people's attitude towards our canine friends was quite negative. Prior to the 19th century, Dogs fulfilled a functional purpose in hunting, but otherwise seen to be dirty, spread diseases, and of little worth. Of course, this is excluding lap dogs, who were so small they were never used for hunting at all. The phrase referring to dogs as a man's best friend was first recorded as being said by Frederick the Great of Prussia in 1789. He said, The only absolute and best friend that a man has in the selfish world, the only one that will not betray or deny him, is his dog. Well. I'm not sure how well that worked out for the prince today, but we get the drift. One possible reason for the rise in popularity in having a canine companion is because of the discovery of the rabies vaccine in 1896. Because knowing that your lovable furry friend was not going to accidentally give you a deadly disease is quite comforting. As always, if you want to see the show summary, notes, and the five fantastic finds, please check them out on our website, talesfromtheenchantedforest.com. If you want to hear more from us, join us on Twitter at From Enchanted or Instagram at Tales from the Enchanted Forest. Or if you're old school like Sparrow, you can email us at talesfromtheenchantedforest at gmail.com. We'd love to hear your questions, comments, and suggestions. So if, if you have anything to share, please don't hesitate. And remember, travelers, if you enjoyed what you heard here today and what we do here, please give us a review on whatever platform you use to listen to your podcasts. It helps the podcast grow and reach new travelers to join us on these adventures. We'll give you a big shout out and our eternal gratitude. And remember, there's always a place for you in the Enchanted Forest. Mm-hmm.